Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew, the fifth chapter, Matthew chapter 5. We're going to continue in our walk through the Sermon on the Mount with a sermon entitled, Do You Take Sin Seriously or Do You Seriously Sin? In the beginning of his classic book, Whatever Became of Sin, Dr. Carl Menninger shares a story, and I want to share it with you at least an excerpt from that story this morning. There was a sunny September day in Chicago. A a stern-faced, plainly-dressed gentleman could be seen standing on the corner in the city by the really busy loop there in downtown Chicago. And people were hurrying by on their way to lunch or or carrying out their business. And as people were, were coming by him, he would lift up his right arm and point to the person nearest him and loudly proclaim, Guilty! And that would continue to happen. He would do this without any kind of change of expression. Every time somebody got near to him, he would pronounce them guilty. One of the onlookers there expressed that that, the people didn't quite know how to respond. One man, perhaps describing how those who were there felt, turned to another person and exclaimed, Yes, but how did he know? The question of this title, beloved, remains relevant whatever became of sin it's not like sin has disappeared it's not as if we've stopped sinning it's not that we no longer feel guilt or feel embarrassment or feel something when we sin in fact if we're honest about it we would probably respond just like the guy who asked but how did he know let's read our text verses 29 and 30 from the gospel of Matthew I'd ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word Jesus speaking here, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Father, uh, we're mindful of this text. We've heard it before. And it seems stern to us in in, in many ways. And yet, Father, we pray today that you'd help us to understand how seriously you feel about sin. And may we, Father, adopt your view as we grow in more and more like your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Sin has become an almost really obsolete term in our culture today. Most folks, even even a lot of Christians, just don't like to use that word. Most folks in this woke culture in, in which we live, and many who call themselves Christians want to rationalize, they want to justify, they want to downplay sin. So we say things like, well, we messed up. Well, I just goofed up. Uh, well, I've got some faults. I've got some shortcomings. I've got some hang-ups. I've got some problems. I made a mistake. We, we simply don't like to use the word sin, though. We don't want to be thought of as a sinner, even if we're the ones thinking that we're a sinner. And this mindset toward the idea of sin is closely related to the mentality of victimhood that we see so much of in our culture today, which, of course, we as Christians don't agree with. We know what the Bible says, right? In fact, it goes all the way back to to the garden. In Genesis chapter 3, what did Adam and Eve do when they were confronted with their sin? They claimed to be victims, right? They played the victim. Well, Lord, it's the woman. She's the one to blame. And then what do you say about the serpent? 
Well, he's the one to blame. But notice what Adam says in verse 12. Remember, Adam is speaking to God here when he says, the woman you gave to me. Now, who's Adam blaming here? Right. So this, this mindset, this aversion to calling sin, sin, it, it's something we understand coming from those who have yet to receive Christ. But I fear we see it in too many of the lives of those who claim Christ. And in too many churches, it is as Randy Alcorn has written, holiness was once a central component of following Christ. But for many today, the Christian life is simply is little more than a celebration of cheap grace and pseudo-liberty with a high tolerance for sin. Let's be honest, church family. There's little or no interest in talking about sin today, whether it's in the culture at large or the church local. Too many adherents to the idea of secularism feel that sinful, having an inherent sinful nature is an old-fashioned idea. Secular humanism rules the day in our culture, and its adherents have declared all-out war on the very concept of sin. They, they don't want anything, any behavior labeled a sin. Everything's just a lifestyle choice. Who's to say what's a sin? Homosexuality? Not a sin. It's a lifestyle choice. Notwithstanding what God's Word says. Transgenderism. Not a sin, just a, a feeling to be encouraged and enabled. The fact that the Bible tells us God created us male and female doesn't matter. Abortion, not a sin. But a woman's reproductive health care right. Regardless of the fact that God's Word says, what God's Word says about His active role in our formation and creation in the womb, that our days were numbered even before there was one of them to be numbered. It sounds like a very intellectually dishonest and morally confusing way of thinking to me. How about you? So why doesn't our culture want to talk about sin? For one thing, talking about sin has religious overtones. That's because usually when we think about sin, we also think about God. And we would say rightly so, because after all, isn't, isn't, isn't sinning breaking the law of God? If we break the law of God, don't we have to answer to the God who wrote the law and to whom we're accountable. Andrew Bonar reminds us, it is not the importance of the thing, but the majesty of the lawgiver that is to be the standard of obedience. It is really this, is the Lord to be obeyed in all things whatsoever He commands? Is He a holy lawgiver? Are His creatures bound to give implicit assent to His will? Jerry Bridges asks, are we willing to call sin, sin, not because it is big or little, like the cat food? We can insert here, not because we don't see it as all that bad, Bridges says, but simply because God's law forbids it. A lot of folks don't want to consider that possibility, that a thing is wrong, that it is sin, simply because God's Word says that it's sin. That's in addition to not wanting to admit that the thing that they've done is a sin. It's much easier to talk about that thing, as we said earlier, being a failure or a weakness or a slip-up than to talk about sinning against a holy God who will one day hold us accountable. Well, what does John say? 1 John 1, verses 8 and 10. He says that if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him, that is God, a liar. 
And God's Word is not in us. Another reason we don't, and the culture doesn't want to talk about sin, and we've talked about this before, is because our culture has taken a, a, an unquestionably relativistic turn in this move towards secularism, especially when it comes to religion. When, when we speak with those who adhere to, to relativism, the moment we say something along the lines, say like, well, God, God sin, I mean, is, is breaking God's moral standard. Well, they'll inevitably come back with, well, who's to say whose moral standards are right? There are a lot of standards out there. What makes Christians think that their standard is the right standard? That's because relativism dictates that truth depends on circumstances and it's rooted in emotions. Feelings are elevated to the truth. The truth is what I feel is the truth. And then truth is not a constant. What is true may not have been true yesterday and it may not be true tomorrow. And this is what happens when a nation turns away from God. Truth becomes what the culture says it is and the culture is fluid when it comes to truth. In reality, we've gone beyond relativism in our culture today. We live in the age of untruth. Untruth. Just make up a narrative that fits your agenda. Spout it as the truth. Do it long enough and loud enough. And for many, it will become true, even if it has no basis in fact. Morality becomes what Hollywood, the social media, uh, mainstream media, politicians, classmates, your co-workers... Say it is. There's no absolute standard by which words and actions can be judged. This mindset says that to call a thing a sin, well, that, that's just going too far. There's one major difficulty with this philosophy, and I'm, listen, I'm risking a lot sharing this. This is a deep theological construct. It requires many years to apprehend, but I'm going to risk sharing it with you anyway. Are you ready? Here it is. It's wrong because God says it's wrong. There's a God. And He takes sin very seriously. The Bible is clear when it calls sin defiance of God's law. It's also clear when it states that we've all committed sin. Here's one for you math people out there. Even if you only committed one sin a day for an average, average lifetime, you would have over 28,000 sins on your record. Raise your hand if you only sin once a day. <laughs> right. If you went into a court of law, let's just say, as a multiple offender with over 28,000 crimes for which you were, as, you were guilty as charged, do you suppose you might be in just a little bit of trouble? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us a powerful and radical evaluation of sin. And even from just a casual reading of Matthew 5, 29 and 30, there's no doubt that Jesus takes sin seriously. Do you and I take sin seriously? Or do we seriously sin? We will do one or the other. Jesus was radically clear in his prescription for dealing with sin and its effects. So we're going to consider this morning the definition, the danger, and the destruction of sin, of the spiritual disease of sin. And it's my hope that as a result of this message, we will all come to take sin more seriously than we do. So what is sin? What is its nature? There are several words, excuse me, there, there are two categories uh, 
that these words are used in the Bible to describe sin. They're, they're grouped into two categories according to whether the wrongdoing is positive or, or negative. Negatively, it's a shortcoming. One word that is used to define the, for sin is translated as sin represents it as a lapse, a slip, or, or a blunder. Another one, you're probably more familiar with this one, harmatia, that's the missing of a mark as when you're aiming at an object. Another word that's translated sin shows it to be an inward badness, a disposition which falls short of that which is good. Positively, it's transgression. One word makes sin a, a trespass of a boundary. Another reveals it as lawlessness. Another as an act that violates justice. Both these groups, both these groups of words imply the existence of a moral standard. It's either an ideal that we fail to reach or a law which we break. James says in chapter 4 verse 17, whoever knows what is right to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. There's the negative aspect. John says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. There's the positive aspect. Now the Bible clearly acknowledges that, that people have different standards. I mean, what is our ethical code? It may be the law of Moses. It could be the law of Jesus. A person's ethical code may, may be rooted in the folkways and mores of the community in which he lives. It could, could come out of this benevolent heart or spirit that, that a person has or, or simply be rooted in what feels right for that person at the moment. It may be the, the Buddhist noble eightfold path or the Muslim's five pillars. But whatever it is, understand this, whatever that moral code is rooted in, no person has ever succeeded in, in fully observing their code. Every person who has ever lived stands self-condemned by whatever code it is that their standard is rooted in. Now, to a great many good, give you the shirt off their back kind of people, this comes as a genuine surprise. They have their standards they think they pretty much live up to them. They don't spend a lot of time evaluating themselves. They're not into introspection. They're not into self-criticism. They admit, yeah, I, I, I occasionally slip up. I occasionally make some mistakes. They're aware that they have some character deficiencies. But none of that bothers them. They're not bothered because they look around. And they see what's going on. They see who's doing what to whom. And they think, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so over there. Well, I'm in pretty good shape compared to that guy. A good guy, at least, is when I look at this person over here. And all that's understandable. We get that. It's easy enough to grasp until we understand two things. First, our sense of failure depends on how high our moral standards are. And two, God concerns Himself with the thought behind the deed and with the motive behind the action, making us what? All guilty. Say we're all guilty. We have all failed to meet that standard. Most Christians associate sin with the commission of various wrong deeds. And there's no doubt that, 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 that they're sins, right? Sins are violations of God's law. But I want you to understand that sin is more than that, beloved. Sin is all that is contrary to God. Sin is all that which stands against God, that takes the place of God, as in idolatry. Specific Sinful actions are merely symptoms of the disease. It's the disease of sin that causes us to commit sinful acts. What did James say about that? You know, that, that desire within us when it gives birth to sin, and sin when it is full grown gives birth to death, right? 
Jesus made it clear that, for instance, the act of adultery, as we looked at last week, is rooted where? In the desire of the heart, right? That sin is committed in the heart long before it's committed in the flesh. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 19, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and slanders. It's because our hearts have become corrupt through the disease of sin that we commit sinful acts. We commit sinful acts because we were born with a sinful nature. And proof of that sin nature abounds. I'll give you an example. Does anyone have to teach a child to lie? Right? Or to be selfish? Or to get angry when they don't get their way? No, we go to great lengths to teach children to tell the truth all the time. To put others first. To be patient. Sinful behavior comes naturally. The evening news is filled with tragic examples of, of mankind acting badly. Wherever you find people, you're going to find trouble. Charles Spurgeon said, As the salt flavors every drop in the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. It is so sadly there, so abundantly there, that if you cannot detect it, you are deceived. So where did that sin nature come from? Scripture tells us that God created humans good Without a sinful nature, God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. But in Genesis 3, we see what? The disobedience of Adam and Eve, right? By the one act of disobedience, eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one tree in the garden from which they were forbidden to eat, sin entered their nature. And they were immediately overwhelmed with this sense of shame and guilt. You remember that. They hid from God's presence. And when they, had, when they had children, Adam passed his image and likeness onto his offspring, Genesis 5, 3. Then that, we saw that sin nature rear its ugly head so early in the genealogy. The very first child born to Adam and Eve, Cain became the very first murderer. And from generation the generation that sin nature was passed down to all of humanity. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. It's in that verse and others where we see the unsettling truth that the sin nature inevitably leads to death. The Bible speaks of those who have yet to come to Christ as slaves to sin. As those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. And beloved, only Christ can free people from that slavery. We know that. Only the Holy Spirit can awaken those who are dead in their sins. But even after they've been freed, even after we've been freed, we have the capacity to sin, don't we? Even after we've been made alive in Christ Jesus, we still have the capacity to sin. We can still willfully violate the law of God, whether our believer or an unbeliever. As a believer or an unbeliever, we violate the law of God. Sin is still sin, and it's taken very seriously by God. Now, why does God take sin so seriously? Because our God is a holy God. Confessing His holiness is just one of the ways we're to praise Him. We do this as we sing, as we pray, as we preach, as you sit and listen to a, to a message. John 
Describe what he saw in his vision of heaven in Revelation 4, the four living creatures around God's throne who never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He was and is and is to come. The seraphim and Isaiah's vision of God's glory, also they uttered that threefold description of, of God's holiness as they called to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. When Moses was praying for the deliverance of the Israelites from Pharaoh's army, he sang of God's holiness. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? God is often called holy in Scripture, the Holy One, the Holy One of Israel. Stephen Charnock says that holy is used more often as a prefix to His name than any other attribute. Jerry Bridges writes that holiness is God's crown. Here's the way he illustrates it. Stay with me on this. Imagine for a moment that God possessed omnipotence, that is infinite power, omniscience, that is perfect and complete knowledge, and omnipresence. He's everywhere present all the time, but without perfect holiness. Such a person could no longer be described as God. Holiness is a perfection of all His other attributes. His power is holy power. His mercy is holy mercy. His wisdom is holy wisdom. It is His holiness more than any other attribute that makes Him worthy of our praise. And for you and me, beloved, that remains that God requires more than us confessing His holiness, as important as that is. He says to us, be holy, because I am holy. God's standard for all of His creatures is perfect holiness. It can't be any other way. We can't disregard, he can't disregard any commission of evil. He can't for one moment relax His standard of holiness. His consistent call must be, as in 1 Peter 1.15, so be holy in all that you do. The prophet Habakkuk declared, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Because God is holy. He can never excuse. He can never overlook any sin we commit, however small it might be, because God is holy. And because He's holy, He hates sin. Now, hate is such a strong word. We kind of dislike using that unless we're talking about Brussels sprouts or cauliflower. We tell our children not to use that word especially when they're talking about other folks. Beloved, when it comes to God's attitude towards sin, only that strong a word gives us the right idea of how God feels about sin. Speaking with the very sins in Israel, God says, for all these things are what I kind of don't like. Uh-uh, I hate So hate is an appropriate emotion when it comes to sin. In fact, the more we grow in holiness, the more we will come to hate sin. David says, through your precepts, talking to God, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Now think, stay with me here. If that's true of man, who is imperfectly holy, we're never perfectly holy, think of God who is infinitely and perfectly holy. 
As we grow in holiness, we grow in hatred of sin. But God, being infinitely holy, has an infinite hatred of sin. How many times have we heard someone say, or we've said ourselves, God hates the sin, but loves the sinner? Heard that one, haven't we? Right? Yeah. Praise God. Aren't we thankful that's true? Paul writes in Romans 5, 8, But God shows His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We've got to be careful here now. We can't escape the fact, that's true, but we can't escape the fact that God hates our sins. We may trifle with our sins, we may excuse our sins, but God hates our sins. So every time we sin, that means what, beloved? Every time we, are, we sin, we are doing something God hates. He hates our immoral thoughts. He hates our pride. He hates our greed. He hates our gluttony. He hates our jealousy. He hates our outbursts of anger. Beloved, we need to fully comprehend that God hates Sin. Now, us, we, we can become so familiar, so comfortable with our sins that we can relax and even fall into a kind of peaceful coexistence with them. But God never ceases to hate them. Beloved, you and I need to develop in our heart the same hatred of sin that God has. Hatred of sin as sin, not just as something distressing or disturbing to ourselves, but as that which is displeasing to our Father God. That's what must happen if you and I hope to pursue true holiness. The holiness of God is an extremely high standard. It's a perfect standard. Nevertheless, that is the standard to which He holds us. He cannot do less. It's true of us, of course, that He accepts us solely through the, through the merits of Christ. But God's standard for our character, for our actions, for our attitudes, for our affections is be holy because I am holy. We must take sin seriously if we're to be holy even as He is holy. R.C. Sproul writes, Sin is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. It is an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything, to the one who has given us life itself. But we need to stop and think about the implications of our sinning and our attitude towards sinning, however slight we perceive them to be. What are we saying to the God of the universe, to our Father God, to the Creator of heaven and earth, when we sin even just one of those little sins, what we are saying, in effect, is a big no to His righteousness. What we're saying is that His laws, His commands, are not good for us. We are saying that our judgment is better than His judgment. We are saying that we are not under His authority, but in fact we are above His authority, that we have the right to do whatever we want, whenever we want to do it, not what He wants us to do, when He wants us to do it. So sin is contrary to His very nature. Do you understand, church family, that God hates sin? 
We need to understand that to violate the, the law of God is a sin against His holiness. It's not just a mistake. It's, it's a violation of divine righteousness. We need to decide whether we're taking sin seriously or whether we are seriously sinning. God hates sin because He's holy, but He also hates sin because of what it does to folks, the harmful, hurtful effects of sin. But if you, beloved, if you and I are going to take sin seriously, we've got to come to understand the danger, the true danger of sin. Well, how dangerous is sin? Well, according to Jesus, it's dangerous enough to cause a person to spend eternity in hell. And if that's the danger of unforgiven sin, beloved, that's about as dangerous as it can get. Sin, you see, not only produces guilt, but it also pollutes us. It causes us to be morally unrighteous and guilty before God. We will have to give an account for our every violation of God's law. And the Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death. And that death is an eternal death. It's an eternal condemnation to hell. Another wildly unpopular topic that is hell. Folks don't want to hear about that. Some of you are cringing a little bit. But, beloved, it is one that demands our attention. Do a survey sometime of how much time Jesus spent talking about it. A.W. Tozier writes, The vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate. Think about that the consciences of millions. Now, church family, it is absolutely true that the world needs to hear about the love of Jesus, about the grace of Jesus, about the mercy of Jesus, about the gentleness of Jesus, but our words will not penetrate hard hearts and pierce through deaf ears if we don't share and teach in the light of His holiness, His glory, and the coming judgment. Heaven is an eternal reality for those who are saved. And hell is the sad reality for those who remain unrepentant. Randy Alcorn has written, If there is no hell, there is no justice. Hell is not evil. It is the place where evil gets punished, he writes. Hell is not pleasant, appealing, or encouraging, but hell is morally good because a good and just God must punish evil. You and I must present the wicked condition of man's heart apart from Christ Jesus and the awful reality of eternal separation from Him if folks remain unrepentant. Along with the grace and forgiveness and love and mercy and eternal life He offers. It's not an easy, not a palatable message to share, but, beloved, it, I guarantee you it is the only message that will matter to them in the first moments after they leave this earth. God hates sin because sin destroys the people He loves. How about you this morning, beloved? Do you take sin seriously or do you seriously sin? If you do not see the danger of sin, you will never take sin seriously. 
If we're going to take sin seriously, we must be dedicated to the destruction of sin within our lives. In other words, destroy sin before it destroys you. I've shared this quote with you before from the Puritan John Owen. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. For for Christ to speak here, even using hyperbole about gouging out eyes and cutting off hands, shouldn't just grab our attention. Beloved, it ought to alarm us to how casual and cavalier we are about sin. Of course, Jesus wants us to see that gouging out an eye or cutting off a hand will not solve our problems. He's hinting at that when he says, advocates gouging out your right eye or cutting off your right hand since the left eye and the left hand would still be capable of leading us into sin all by themselves. Jesus has made it clear already in verse 28 The problem originates in the heart. Jesus gave a radical solution to the problem of sin because sin is a spiritual and moral malignancy and if it's left unchecked, it can spread throughout our entire inner being and contaminate every area of our lives. We must commit our best efforts and our best resources to destroying sin. We must do whatever it takes to destroy it. Jesus is saying that sin is such serious business that even if the most precious thing you have causes you to sin, get rid of it. Deal radically with sin. Deal radically with what causes you to sin. Don't make excuses for your sin. Now the Bible makes clear the how-to when it comes to dealing with sin. In Romans 13, 14, Paul writes, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify, to gratify its desires. Again, in Romans 8, 12, he says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. We've got to do whatever it takes to avoid sin. Now, that doesn't mean that we're ever going to be perfect. Say we're not going to be perfect. No one is. But, beloved, that does not mean, then, that imperfection becomes our standard. Our calling as God's children is to be like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because God loves righteousness. He must hate sin. Because the foundation of God's throne is righteousness and justice. He must, He will, and He must punish all lawbreakers. Think about it. A judge who refuses to uphold the law is a corrupt and a a wicked judge. And God's neither of those things, despite what we see in our culture. Because God is perfectly good and perfectly just. When He punishes sin, no stone's going to be left unturned. The psalmist says, the one who made the eye also sees. The one who made the ear also hears. Beloved, every lie has been written in God's books. Every act of immorality has been noted. Every pornographic perusal has been recorded. Every angry word has been heard. Every failure to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength has been archived. Every sinful thought has been transcribed in God's record book now back to that opening illustration when God's gavel is slammed as it will one day be he will proclaim every criminal guilty 
has charged. And Jesus will say, Depart from me, for I never knew you. As he cast those evildoers into hell, Jesus himself will sentence guilty criminals to eternal conscious torment. You hear me? Eternal conscious torment. No relief, no naps, no daydreams, no reprieve, no happy memories, no water, no light, no comfort, no joy, no hope ever. Nothing but the relentless wrath of God poured out on every sinner every second for every sin ever committed. You say, well, why must God treat sinners so severely? Because God is not nice, nice, nice. He's holy, holy, holy. A crime committed against the state of Washington, that's one thing. But a crime committed against the creator of the universe is something else altogether. Every act of disobedience is not just an oops. It's an arrogant crime against our sovereign king. Our offenses, therefore, demand eternal conscious torment because our offenses have been committed against moral perfection and goodness. There will be no escaping the sentence of the, la- of the just judge of all the earth who will judge the world in righteousness. Acts 17.31 In Hebrews we read it as a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We are doomed. Rightly doomed. We are hopelessly lost unless unless God Himself intercedes and rescues us. We must pay the price for our sins unless God Himself pays our debt. We must receive the just punishment for our sins unless someone else takes our punishment for us. And that beloved is where Jesus Christ comes in. Praise God. Because the universe before it was created, the Son of God volunteered. He stepped forward to come to this wicked world and take on human flesh, live a perfect life, die a violent death. Jesus Christ gave Himself to receive the wrath of God that you and I deserve. Jesus Christ became our representative when He took on human flesh. When Jesus hung on the cross, God saw Him hanging there and poured out His wrath upon Him, upon God the Son. And there God the Son satisfied the wrath of God the Father as He gave His life on Calvary. For those who are in Christ Jesus, when God now looks at us, He sees the righteousness of His perfect Son. Amen. Jesus, who never sinned, became our sin that we might become the righteousness of God, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Because of His sacrifice on our behalf, God can be just and the justifier of those who repent and trust Jesus, Paul writes in Romans 3.26. 
A lot of great stories out there, but every great story ever told pales in comparison to the truth of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. King Jesus. He's the King of Kings who became poor to die for undeserving beggars. Beloved, that's us. Say, that's us. Yeah, I know I don't want to say it very loud either. It's us. To make possible our adoption into God's family to make us co-heirs with Him. That's us too. Say, that's us too. Yeah, a little louder. Ambassadors for the God who made us and everything else. Wicked, hateful, self-centered rebels can be and have been and will be reconciled to the gracious King if they will repent and place their trust in Jesus. But that is amazing grace. That is amazing love. Let me ask you again. Do you take sin seriously? Or do you seriously sin? What are your favorite sins? What are the sins that you find yourself habitually committing? Some of us in this room, this many people, some of us have sins we need to deal with right now. Before we leave this place today, before we take the Lord's Supper together, as we will in just a moment. And the scripture, scriptural method for dealing with our sins is to repent. Confess our sins to God and commit ourselves to turn away from those sins. If you really want to take sin seriously, beloved, you must repent before a holy God. So let me ask you, are you willing right now, today, to humble yourselves before God and turn away from your sin? We must take sin seriously because sin has serious consequences. We must take sin seriously because God in His holiness takes sin seriously. He takes it so seriously that it cost Him His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, who poured out His blood to wash away our sins. Would you pray with me? Sometimes your word is, is a great comfort and encouragement to us. Just lifts us up and buoys our spirit. And with one reading, but not even deep reflection. And sometimes, sometimes, when we read your word, the passage convicts us. The feelings, the emotions that arise up are not pleasant ones. We don't like to think about the ways we've sinned against you. We're thankful for the forgiveness we have in your Son, Jesus Christ. For you imputing His righteousness to us, to those who have believed. Father, we recognize that we still sin. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but the guilt remains. I pray you'd help us, Father. We, we, we want to, and we want to want to, strive for holiness. 
to desire holiness, to try to every day, from when we get up to when we go to bed, to walk in holiness. We pray for you to captivate our hearts and our minds, our thoughts, our opinions, our ambitions, our words, our actions, everything, Father, in a way that they would glorify you. We need that, Lord God. We're weak and vacillating, and we cannot do it on our own. You have saved us. You have opened up blind eyes. You have made alive those who were dead in sins and trespasses, and you have promised to fill us and enable us to do what you've called us to do and to be. Thank you, Father. Speak to the hearts of here, those here today, Lord. We pray that your son's been lifted up, so I know that they're going to hear. I know that their hearts are going to be touched. But I pray, Lord, that if there be one here today who needs to receive your son, Jesus Christ, as their personal Lord and Savior, they've never made a confession of faith in him before. They are lost and dead in their sins, bound for hell. I pray today would be the day of their salvation. And they'd either come and talk to me after the end of this service or, or come and talk to another believer about what you're doing in their heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.